0: This morning from Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill Him. And three days after being killed, He will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum and he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of God for the people of God. This morning we run into this theme that we found woven throughout the Gospel of Mark where Jesus gives admonitions to His disciples and others not to talk about Him. Not to tell people what they have heard or learned or experienced. He says He doesn't want others to know who He is. You see it in that very first verse we read in verse 30, where we began this morning, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And then this sentence, he did not want anyone to know it. He did not want anyone to know it. We find a similar theme in the first verse part of this chapter early in chapter 9 there's the story of the transfiguration as it's called it gives this Sunday its name transfiguration Sunday, is the last Sunday before Lent begins Mark tells us the story about Jesus going up on a mountain with three of his disciples and then they have this experience with him where he becomes radiant or as it says in verse 3 and his clothes became dazzling white And then verse 7, Mark says, Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to Him. Listen to Him with an exclamation point. That's the theme we've been working on all these weeks as we've moved into this new year is listening to Jesus. What does it mean to listen to Him? And how can we follow him? But I want us to notice one other thing in that same story that Mark records later in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It seems that Jesus believes they will not understand until after he has been raised. Now, we know that the popular idea in terms of who the Messiah was going to be at this time when Jesus was alive had everything to do with getting rid of the Romans. The Romans have come in and taken over. And so the popular images for the Messiah were that this fellow would be a military or political leader strong enough to overthrow the Romans and run them out of town, to get them out of the area, and finally then, the Jewish people and the Jewish land would be free once again. They were yearning for this leader, this Messiah, to come and free them all. As Christians... We see it a little differently. We would say Jesus is the Messiah, but he had a radically different view of what that means and therefore what path we follow to experience it. Back in chapter 8. Before where we began to read today in chapter 9, Jesus begins to try to explain to his disciples this path of discipleship, this path that he is on. In verse 31 in chapter 8, he says, then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must that the son of, he must undergo great suffering. Then he goes on to say how he's going to be rejected and betrayed and killed. And then three days later, rise again. But this idea that suffering is at the heart of this revelation, is at the heart of this path of discipleship, is important for us to grapple with. We hear it today. As we get over into chapter 9, we began to read that He went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill Him. And three days after being killed, He will rise again. But they did not understand Mark tells us over and over that the disciples are struggling, understanding. They did not understand what He was saying and were afraid to ask Him. It is a difficult thing to grasp how suffering can be part of the good news. It's hard to understand how suffering can lead to new life. How death can be a pathway or an open door. The renewal of our spirit, leading us to life and life abundant. And yes, that's exactly what the text tells us. Is exactly what the revelation of Jesus is all about. Suffering and death can lead to new life. Can lead to resurrection when offered up to God. So much. Of the good news is easier to hear than this. And yet the Gospels make it clear that understanding and comprehending and encountering this idea of suffering being a part of abundant life runs throughout the Gospels. But you may have experienced something like this. Many of us have experienced that in our most broken times, when we've had a great Lost, or felt like like we are lost or for whatever reason feel like our life is crumbling around us, it was at that moment we experienced the presence of God most powerfully. So often in the midst of our failures, maybe you've had this experience where You just felt like an utter failure that somehow it's gone so wrong that you're not even a worthy human being. That you have been humiliated in one way or another, maybe at the hands of others where your pain felt like maybe it was even overbearing. It was then that you realized the healing presence of God was surrounding you and undergirding you. It's a paradox of our lives. It's a paradox of the Gospel. What has been one of the central things that's held the Christian church together through the ages, despite all of our differences, is Holy Communion. That central act where we proclaim and remind ourselves about the broken bread, reminding us of the broken body of Christ. And the cup of wine or juice, which reminds us of the poured out blood or the poured out life of Jesus on our behalf. And that he gave his all so that we might know, even in those broken times, God is there. And not only is God there, but God can bring new life where all that we might see is pain and suffering and brokenness. Often during Holy Communion, coming down front to kneel, we prepare ourselves to receive the elements of Holy Communion. I often find it a humbling act to kneel at the altar of God and look at my life in the light of the light, the life of Christ. As we read through the liturgy of Holy Communion and say the prayers and experience the silence, we have opportunity to use all of that as an experience of self-examination and confession. And it can be a humbling experience. In fact, it is designed to be a humbling experience. So often in our lives, when something has gone wrong and we have one of those negative experiences, we describe it as a humbling experience. And we think of it as a negative or a terrible thing, as, as if somehow it shouldn't be a part of our lives. But the Christian story has a different proclamation about humility. To be humble is a very good thing. To be humble in the Christian story is a virtue. It's the place that we want to be. And suffering takes us there. Oh, suffering can break us, but it doesn't have to break us. It can take us deeper in our understanding of life and carve out a space within us where compassion grows and our ability to see the suffering and the pain of others and identify and respond to that can be cultivated. It can take us deeper in terms of our spiritual journey. When Jesus is trying to explain this to those first disciples, Mark is telling us the story all about it. Right after Jesus tells them for the first time, He's going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Then He tells them this. Chapter 8, verse 34. Mark writes, He called the crowd with His disciples... And said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And remember, taking up the cross is not just, oh, I have this daily burden. In his time, the cross was a sign of humiliation and torture, of suffering and death. It was something to be dreaded. And yet Jesus is calling them to take up their cross and follow me. He goes on to say, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. We also notice that in these passages, Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man. When He could have said, Oh, I am God in the flesh. I am the Son of God. I'm the Beloved of the Father. He refers to Himself with no titles of exaltation. But He says, Son of Man. And you begin to grasp the notion that He's saying, I'm a human one. I understand you. I'm living as You are living. I am the Son of Man. It is a very humble way to refer to Himself. And yet, with all this teaching and explaining, the disciples still struggle to grasp what He is talking about. But I think it's not only true for them, I think it's true for us as well. It's difficult To comprehend what it means that suffering is the way to life. That to embrace Jesus Christ is to embrace our suffering and the suffering of others. And to identify with other human beings in very different circumstances. The disciples struggle with that. And Mark tells us not only do they not understand But characteristically for Mark, he shows us with a story. He describes the action for us. So right between the first time where Jesus says, I'm about to suffer, be betrayed, I'm about to be killed, and then rise again. And the second time where he tells them the same thing, in between those two occasions, what Mark tells us the disciples do, is they have an argument about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to be on the top of the ladder, Who's going to be the one who's exalted? Mark makes it clear they don't get it. They're not grasping what is going on here. They're looking to somehow follow this Messiah that they think is getting ready to take over the world when He's about to go to the cross. And so they're arguing about who gets to go with Him to the top. Which one of us is going to be on top? Which one of us will be the greatest? Which one of us will be the exalted one? Mark goes on to say, when they finish that little trek, they get to a house. And when they go in the house, Jesus asks them what they were arguing about. And they go silent after they had had plenty of say about who's going to be the greatest, when he asked them, what have you been arguing about? What are you discussing? They go silent. They say nothing. Perhaps it is a humbling moment for them. It might even be the first time that they begin to get just a glimpse of what Jesus is all about. He's called them aside. He doesn't want anyone else to even know where they are so that they can focus, so that they can learn, so that they can listen, so that they might comprehend all that He is doing and all that God is doing in Him and through Him. And they're arguing about something else completely. Mark goes on as he often does. To tell us a story that illustrates what's been going on. He does the same thing in the last of the passage we read today. Verse 35. He tells us that after the disciples have gone silent, Jesus sat down, called the twelve and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Does that sound like a political or a military Messiah coming to rule? Does that sound like becoming the greatest through power and might? Through prestige or privilege? Jesus has... An utterly different sense of what his messiahship is all about. And it's leading him down a radically different path than what the disciples and all of those who were around Jesus were thinking was about to happen. And even though he's describing this different path, they are really struggling to understand what in the world he could be talking about. Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant. It's the paradox of the gospel. It's a different definition of greatness that the gospel story reveals to us. And further, welcome the small, welcome the powerless. Welcome the child. Welcome one who can't do anything for you. Welcome one without merit. Welcome one who's undervalued and overlooked. Welcome that one. That's what the kingdom of God is all about, Jesus says. So I was reading over this passage this week. I thought of Mother Teresa In my memory, she embodies this more than anyone I've ever known or heard about. She often said that her calling was not to do great things, but small things with great love. For she wanted to love as Jesus loved. That was her calling. Early in her life, she was called to be a school teacher. She was a nun. She taught school. She did well. She became a principal. But about halfway through her life, she had this experience in Calcutta where she walked past a man who was laying on the ground and dying, and everybody else was walking past the same man, and nobody was paying attention as if he wasn't even there. And Mother Teresa says she felt Jesus speak to her. And she went back to care for the man. And it changed her life. And she began to give herself and her time and all of her resources. She left teaching to go into the city to care for those who were overlooked, who were dispossessed who were dying and being discarded by all around to see if she could care for them. One time, another person from a social service agency came to where she was working and volunteered to work with her. Mother Teresa was glad that she had come. She always welcomed volunteers to come and help serve the poor and the dispossessed. This woman said, you know, where I usually work, we do social work also. And even though Mother Teresa was glad she came, she said to her, well, let me just tell you here, we try to see the face of God in every person we serve. So it may look like we're doing social work, but we probably have a different motivation than what you're used to. We do it for Jesus. That is our motivation. And then she told this woman a story about another one of the sisters who one day on her way home after serving with Mother Teresa saw a man on the side of the road. And she stopped to check on him. He was in terrible shape. She decided she needed to care for him. She went to pick him up. But he was so sick that even as she picked him up some of his skin peeled off she decided she needed to take him home and care for him so she went ahead and lifted the man and took him home he was very ill he was being eaten alive by parasites she painstakingly worked to clean his body from head to toe It took her several hours until she finally got him all cleaned up. And then just a few hours later, he died. But she said, before he died, he had this most magnificent smile on his face. She said you could tell a sense of peace had come to him in those last hours of his life. Mother Teresa asked the sister, how did you feel when you were taking care of this man, when you were touching his body? And she said, oh, Mother, I've never really experienced the presence of Christ like this. But really, really, I felt as if I was touching the body of Christ. Mother Teresa often said that in the face of the poor and the dispossessed, she did not only see the child or the person, but she saw the face of Jesus in their face. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Amen.